Welcome to the Habits of Leadership podcast, brought to you by Cut Through Coaching, helping leaders and their teams to thrive, professionally and personally. Hello and welcome to episode 21 of the Habits of Leadership podcast. My name is Dan Hasler from Cut Through Coaching and joining me today is Mr. Tim Perkins. Good morning, Dan. How are you? Pretty good, mate. Yourself? Very well. Very Excellent. well. Enjoying a bit of uh, wet weather over the weekend. Uh, Indeed. Something we're not all that familiar with these days. We're not, but hopefully it's getting to uh, to where it's needed. And that actually is uh, in, in line, I guess, with the... Uh, what we're going to be talking about today, or more specifically, what you're going to be talking about today, because uh, we're going to do a bit of a, an education special today, and particularly a focus on uh, with schools. Just recently going back here in Australia, how schools, how teachers, how communities uh, might be handling maybe some of the anxieties or some of the stress that kids um, who have been affected by bushfires, or maybe just been watching it on TV. How are they going to be transitioning back into the uh, the, the classroom? And, and you caught up with someone last week, yeah? Yeah, it was great. I had the opportunity to talk to Andrew Fuller, who's a clinical psychologist, works a lot uh, with children. And we were talking about the concept of eco-anxiety, which is something that people are hearing a bit about and reading a bit about at the moment. And it's just this sort of sense of almost a, an existential dread that that people are feeling, you know, when you hear terms like new normal being talked about and... It's one of the issues I talk about with Andrew in this interview. Um, how do kids feel about that? How are they coping? Because there's a, a real sense that a lot of kids are a bit nervous and a bit worried and a bit unsure how to manage their emotions and feelings in relation to what they've experienced over this most unusual summer that they've just had. So I kicked off by asking Andrew about whether it's a, a blessing at this stage, in fact, that the kids are going back to school so that they can focus on something other than the, the stress and the threat of, of the bushfires that have been affecting a lot of kids very um, specifically in the, because of the region where they live or with other kids, you know, more vicariously. Yeah, it's going to be a bit of a mixed blessing. I mean, it's been such a weird summer, hasn't it, uh, for all, all us all. So it's impossible not to be a bit shaken and fragmented by the whole thing, doesn't matter what age you are. But for kids, of course, it's incredibly perplexing. And, of course, for those who are going back to classrooms where they know their friends, of course, it's going to be a great comfort just to catch up with them and see that they're okay and hopefully and uh, hear about, I guess, their their war stories really of uh, what they might have encountered over the summer. So there's going to be a sort of mixed effect. I mean, I don't think that in many ways we are yet to see the the full level, sadly, of trauma that we will see, uh, partly because early on after any real high-stress event, you have this immediate time when, you know, adrenaline basically protects you and you sort of, in some ways, are armoured right. by basically the high-stress response that you have. And it's only later, if you've ever had a kind of really scary time, that you start shaking and quivering and kind of realising in what level of danger you were. So... Um, that's yet to happen, I think, for lots of people. So the, it's a mixed picture, basically. So And it depends how we handle that that will determine how well or how poorly people are going to cope. It's interesting what you said there about the kids sort of sharing their war stories as you referred to them. Um, is there any sense that, 
those conversations, I mean, it's very difficult to um, be involved in or mediate conversations that are happening between kids in the playground when they sort of tell the, the stories that have affected them personally. Um, but is there any sense that uh, sensible adults should be involved in those conversations with the kids um, so that they don't further freak each other out? Or is it a perfectly healthy thing for kids to talk to each other and, and share their stories? Yeah, so um, we don't have a choice of whether kids will share their stories. Of course, it's such a vivid event and such a horrific event for some that, of course, they will. So if ever there's a time for show and tell in classrooms, this is it. And so wise teachers will gather their students together and really ask about asking students to share their stories of what's been happening for them and for their loved ones over summer. And now, the risk, of course, is that you could think, well, maybe I'm going to share some horror stories, but believe me, they'll be sharing them anyway because, of course, there's not only pain in those stories, there's also a bit of excitement. And it's a, it, hard to say that, but it, it's actually true that there's sort of a mixture of kind of, of basically, you know, having survived a very hard time has some glory to it. Now, that also has a downside, which is, of course, that, there are kids who weren't involved or who were away and uh, it's important to involve them as part of that discussion as active contributors not only in uh, processing the stories but also in considering solutions to what the situation is. What, what thoughts do you have for teachers Andrew? I suppose part of the realm we're working in here is really helping primary school age kids manage their thinking around this but this isn't just for primary school kids as as you alluded to earlier it's it's about everybody it's adults and so secondary school mm. kids as well but what sort of thoughts have you got for teachers who may be feeling under-resourced and uncertain as to how to actually raise this with kids in in a way that's not going to add you know any um element of increased trauma for the kids i think it's important to realize that nobody has all of the answers and so you can't be right about this all the time and so there may be points of discussion that come up and you go wow i've got no idea what to say about that situation and that's okay in fact it's better then just turn to the kids and say look uh i'm not quite sure what i can say that's helpful about what you've just said can i think about that and uh, maybe talk to a few experts and get back to you about it. Yeah. Um, because there are potentially, of course, some horrific stories. However, they will still be shared in the playground, yeah. in the school ground. And so it doesn't, so the fear that somehow I'm bringing up something and distressing people unnecessarily is unwarranted in my view. So it's about being prepared to process things, really, um, and understanding that essentially it's through us making sense of, of what sense we can of these dreadful events that helps us to actually get uh, some healing around it. Yeah. I, I would imagine um, getting the kids to talk about how they feel about certain situations might be um, particularly um, helpful here as well. Is Is that... Is that something that people need to have your sort of, you know, psychological uh, background and experience or is that something your average teacher can be saying to their kids? How did you feel when that happened? Yeah, you can, but certainly before that there's a more uh, important part of tying together the sort of what happened. And so really 
rather than what do you feel about it. It's more about, well, you know, what happened or what did you hear or what did you see and that kind of stuff. So what happens, of course, in traumatic events is it overwhelms us all. And so it fragments our sense of security. And so the first part is to try to make some sense of what the hell is going on in our lives and that's true for kids as well that basically you're saying well okay these are the things that happen um so some kids will sort of globalize the issue so for example if i give you a parallel issue when the london bombings happened many years ago my psychology practice was flooded with uh, students who had recurrent nightmares as if the world was blowing up and uh of course, it's important to help kids to realise that these things occur, but they occur in limited places. And so it doesn't mean the whole world's on fire or the whole country's on fire. And, and adults sometimes contribute to that unwittingly by sort of saying, oh, the, you know, the whole place is going to hell in a handbasket or whatever phrase they might use about this yeah. or the environment's you know wrecked or whatever it might be. And... Of course, in the heat of the moment, that's what they say. But in reality, we have basically areas where we need to address this issue and, and areas where we basically are, are very healthy and strong. And it's helping kids to understand that as well. Well, that's that's really interesting because I know Martin Seligman um, in his, his work around positive psychology talks about that idea of pervasiveness, which is I think what you're referring to there. The, or even, you know, he talks about the three Ps of personalising pervasiveness and permanence um, and this sense that, mm. you know, this term that's been bandied around a lot recently and, and perhaps in an unhealthy way for kids um, of this being the new normal um, and... So therefore, uh, you know, that pervasiveness is perhaps exacerbated. Is that something that we should perhaps try to avoid? So fear can either be something that stops us in our tracks or it's a call to action. And I think as a country, we have a, a clear decision to make now about the message that this summer has sent all of us, really. And do we move into constructive action and take seriously the issues that confront us, or do we feel immobilised and paralysed by it? And that requires, at every level, people to start thinking about that. That's true of our political leaders, but it's also true of every classroom. And it's saying, well, what as a school can we do to make a difference here? Because if we just sit and see ourselves as passive victims of a changing world, we're in trouble. And so, for example, in South Australia, when there were dreadful fires there many years ago, uh, excuse my uh, risk of using child labour, we had kids from schools. Um, the fires there were so hot that the rocks came, rose out of the ground, and we had kids clearing paddocks and helping uh, dig holes to reconstruct fences. And so they were involved in... Uh, resuming and helping farmers to resume the, the the business of farming, and so giving kids the voice, and kids have had quite a voice in the last year or so in terms of climate action, and so here's a chance to really involve them quite strongly in doing things that make a difference. Whether it's lobbying, whether it's uh, awareness, whether it's helping people, there's a whole series of things that can be done. So it doesn't end just basically with the after effects of this summer. 
That's that's fantastic to hear, Andrew, because um, one of the things that I've been reading about and hearing about um, is this concept of people being able to make the sort of contributions that you're referring to, um, and, you know, and obviously very facetiously as child labour, obviously that's not the case, but the idea that people can do something uh, rather than just being a victim of something. Um, are there any particular things that you're hearing about or thinking about that kids can do in a practical way um, they may not be at the fire front themselves and be able to clear land in the sort of example that you gave there. Um, but what about in a, in a way that's going to be very constructive for them but that's realistic and practical for, for many more kids who might be in city schools who really want to do something but don't know where to start? Well, one of the main strands of the Australian curriculum is sustainability. And so under that banner, we can then start to think about what is a sustainable uh climate for ourselves, what's a sustainable agricultural policy and a water policy. And to have kids start to discuss those issues and think about them is constructive and it's something that we need to do at all levels, as I've said before. I mean, we need to have enough water to, and we have to, I need to have enough water storage to basically support our agricultural to supply food. We need to basically think about how we can contain emissions so that at least our environment is a healthy one. So how can all of us start to contribute to a healthy environment? It's something that I as an adult don't necessarily need to have an answer for. In fact, the best answers are going to come from those kids who are the future. They will come up with projects that they think are worthwhile doing. And by being involved in those projects and having some support for doing those projects, they will then heal themselves. Not all of them. Some will need counselling and other support as well. But the vast bulk of the the group, the peer group, will start to mobilise, if you like, as you know, climate kind of activists, I suppose. And, uh, well, some politicians won't like that, but, well... I think that's the time has come. And, of course, there is that element with this idea of an increasing environmental awareness. And as my teenage boys say to me, you know, you wrecked this planet and it's our job to fix it now. So that's a, a nice disclaimer for them, um, which is, has certainly got a, an element of truth to it. Um, but being able to do something practical, you know, I know Cheryl Sandberg, who's the, the chief operating officer at uh, Facebook, wrote a book called Option B, Facing Adversity, Building Resilience and Finding Joy. And, and her premise for writing that book was um, the, the terribly unexpected death of her husband um, and then managing that with her children. And the, the research that she did and some of the information that she shared was around this concept of contributions and saying that they build kids' confidence by reminding them that they can make a difference. And I think exactly what you've described there with increased environmental awareness of kids being involved in sort of groups... Uh, possibly at school, um, environmental groups. But then what about things like art, Andrew? I, I don't know if you've got experience in this particular field, but this, you know, a lot of people talk about art and drama therapy. Um, is that something that you think that um, parents or teachers can, can offer to kids the opportunity to sort of draw their experiences of, of this summer that we've just had and as a way of, you know, as you said a minute ago, sort of healing themselves by bringing these things up to into the light? So there's, there's really three major levels of healing. And the first is our response to stress and trauma. So what most people do in the face of an overwhelming trauma is they freeze, they feel paralysed in terms of any action. And so partly what we need to do is to help them make as much sense as they possibly can of 
whatever events have occurred. And, of course, because kids have been tuned into the media, whether they're in the UK or in Australia or wherever they were, they've all basically been part of this process. And so they need to make sense of it. And that's an incredibly important first part. That's the show and tell part of, of really what could happen in schools. Once that happens, often then the second response is fight flight. And so at that point, the body basically starts to really react. And of course, so what we might see, and it's how, this will vary, of course, from classroom to classroom and area to area. But in some parts of Australia, what you'll see is kids worsen temporarily in the next couple of weeks. And what happens is they start to get the physical kind of responses. Some of them will be more vulnerable to illnesses. Some will have sort of nightmares, miss sleep. Some will basically be off their food a bit. Others will be highly vigilant. And at the, so during those next few weeks, what we need then to have is basically turning that, those fears, if you like, and that reaction into some form of personal expression. So that could be drama, it could be art, it could be construction projects, it could be helping out. Once we've done that, and that's an ongoing process really of making sense of it through those forms of art and dance and whatever it might be, puppetry, then we move to the third phase and in some ways the, the, the most constructive phase of healing, which is what I call connect, protect and respect, or if you like CPR, the CPR of healing. And that's really where we start to plan social action groups that make a difference in our community. So rather than rushing in to basically digging you know, holes for fence posts, what we want to do is those three phases uh, as we go through a recovery patch of this, doing this. And of course, alongside that, you're building a hope of how to become involved in constructing a safer and better world. Oh, that's fantastic, and that's that's a really great little recipe you've got for us there with the with the play on the CPR idea: connect, protect, and respect. And that really puts kids into the driver's seat, I would imagine, um, which will be you know empowering for them in a time where they feel that power has taken been taken away from them and fear has overcome them um i've heard uh psychologists talking about the idea that often fears or anxieties don't come out um until possibly even years after the event and I, I i know that this was true in the case of the september 11 bombings in new york and then also the black saturday bushfires down in victoria uh, more than 10 years ago in 2009 that what some of the psychologists are seeing is that particularly in relation to people who were first responders at terrible scenes like that and the families of those people that their fears anxieties concerns upset didn't really um come out um, immediately and and came out in quite significant ways, you know, quite a, a, t a time down the track. Um, what can we do, if anything, to sort of soften that blow if it does come out later? What can we do along the way um, now? I mean, you've obviously referred to a couple of things already, but is this a phenomenon you're familiar with, this idea that things can come out much later than they appear, what would appear to be expected? Yes, it's something that we see quite a lot in people who cope and are incredibly helpful in high-risk situations, um, that later on, once the contribution's been to some extent completed, that they can fall apart because, of course, they've been coping through basically making a major contribution. And it's fantastic that they do that. 
but we want to protect those people so that they're okay. And really for the one of the things that we do, so I'll use the model that we use with uh, with sort of emergency responders really. What we try to do with them is to have um, an annual plan where they talk about their own mental well-being and set up a plan for increasing that over the next 12 months. And that would be certainly a good thing to think about with kids in schools in bushfire areas. It's then also nominating a guardian angel. And the guardian angel is somebody who is not necessarily your best closest friend or your parent or family member, but somebody who sees you every so often. And that person is a person who, if they say to you, Tim, you're looking a bit kind of dodgy, are you okay? You'll take them seriously. You won't just brush them off. Um, And it's important for everybody to have some people in their lives like that because our inclination when people say, you know, are you okay? And you go, oh, yeah, I'm fine. Um, Right, but this is somebody who actually when they – in fact, you can ask ask people to do that function for you. If I'm looking a bit kind of stressed out, can you let me know so I can kind of take that on board? That guardian angel, um, as we call them, also gets a telephone number. And so if, if say, your guardian angel, Tim, was worried about you, they could call somebody like me and say, could you ring Tim and just say, I think you better come in for a bit of a chat. And uh, we follow through. And so it's a way really of protecting us all because, of course, when you're in the hot water, sometimes you don't, you're the last person to realize you're in the hot water. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, yeah, and particularly if you're a very kind of functioning, capable person who's really well intentioned and hope, helping people, and this, this can apply to kids as well as adults, um, you just don't realize you're falling apart at the edges. And it's only your friends that will pick that up. Yeah. We saw a really great example of that last night. I'm not sure if you saw um, the Q&A show last night um, with Hamish McDonald. And uh, we saw that with the New South Wales politician, Andrew Constance, who's the member for Bega, who's been very severely uh, affected by this personally, but also extremely involved in it. And, um, you know, Hamish McDonald, as the presenter, was asking him, essentially last night are you okay and uh, I thought that made for very interesting television because we don't normally hear a presenter be involved in such an emotional way but it was almost like we were watching Andrew Constance unravel in front of our eyes as he's been so profoundly impacted. I thought the show was excellent and I thought Andrew's contribution was fantastic in terms of sharing just the deep kind of a, a sense of effect of it all. And I think while that must have been very hard for him to do, it was a remarkable contribution because it shows other people that they can also express those needs. And I think that was incredibly valuable. So I, I take my hat off to him. I'll be travelling around the bushfire areas over the next few months and generally having community meetings where people talk about resilience and then the next morning meeting with the local school principals. And then what I do is I say to people, I'll be in this local cafe or wherever I can be uh, for a couple of hours the next morning and people come in. And they share stories and they talk about, well, sometimes they talk about their second cousin's concerns um, rather mm. than their own uh, as a sort of, you know, way of doing it, particularly in the country. Often people don't really want to share their own kind of personal business. But uh, in a way, it's a way of them accessing help without feeling too stigmatised by it. 
So it's a really important process to do. Um, a final question for you, Andrew, and I really appreciate your time today. I know you're very busy at this time. Um, we've talked a lot about kids and how they're responding and how the adults in their lives help them respond and how we deal with what might be you know, considered a new normal of, of increased climatic events and then perhaps as, as we're referring to their also biological events that are going to impact us and kids. Um, my final question is around the anxiety that parents might be feeling, particularly those in the areas um, that have been directly affected by the bushfires um, and how they're feeling about being actually cut off from their kids by sending their kids back to school. So, you know, there are a lot of people, as we all know, who have been evacuated on multiple occasions um, and you, you really want to know where your kids are and where your animals are and where your, your loved ones and family members are when you have to evacuate. Now, if they're separated from you because they're at school, I imagine that's causing some anxiety and some concern for parents who might be even reluctant to send their kids back to school because of a fear of not knowing exactly where they are and how they can keep them safe. Have you got any thoughts on that? Well, also some of those schools aren't in metropolitan areas. Some of them are in yeah. bushfire-prone country areas. And so the alarm can be not just about separation, and, you know, separation anxiety is a, a logical response to fear. We all gather together with our loved ones when we are under pressure. Um, and so it makes sense, therefore, that people are going to need to be in touch with one another much more than they would have previously. And so while the reduction of mobile phones in classrooms, for example, has admirable intentions, it may be that there's going to be some situations where we need to really think, rethink that uh, at this stage because, of course, if people can't contact, they really just freak out. I mean, it's just a dreadful situation. And so just knowing that you're okay, you're safe, makes a big, big difference in people's lives. And so we need to have people not feeling immobilised. We need to feel them empowered to act. And that's the move, that's the healing that has to occur. And that involves basically, you know, sometimes checking in and overly checking, to be honest. I mean, it's easy to label people as sort of overly protective and overly neurotic, but at this stage, that's a sane response. It's best to check in, know, know your base is covered, everyone's well, now I can get on with the day and, and do some constructive things. If I'm fearing that, you know, what's happening to Johnny or Jenny or whoever it is basically away at school, I'm not going to be able to achieve very much. Yeah, that's a really interesting point because I actually believe in your home state of Victoria that mobile phones have been officially banned in uh, high schools as of this school year. That's right. Um, but maybe uh, we need to be realistic and, and responsive to the, the challenges that people are facing. I mean, I'd certainly feel... Um, you know, much more relaxed if I knew that I could send a text to my kid and that they could actually see it in, you know, virtually real time or, or real time itself so that, um, you know, because the, the stakes are high in, in a situation like this and anxiety levels are high and, and people want to be able to be in contact. Yes, we will get through this and, of course, we will become stronger as a community and particularly if we as citizens act very powerfully to think about ways to make sure that we feel connected, protected and respected by one another, that will basically build up a, a society of greater kindness. And so there's a great turning point 
as a possibility here. Nobody would have wished these dreadful events on anyone, of course, but there is an opportunity contained within it that essentially what we can do is now take these issues almost, okay, but they're, they're a given. We, we know they can occur. We know they can also reoccur, and we can be dreadfully scared by that, but we can also act as powerfully as we possibly can to make sure they don't reoccur. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you so much for your time, Andrew. Um, my guest today has been Andrew Fuller, clinical psychologist. Andrew, tell me um, how can people get in contact with you if they want to read more about your work, get in contact with you personally? What's the best way for people to contact you? Uh, my most recent book is Your Best Life at Any Age, which talks about resilience throughout the lifespan, um, but also my website's uh, andrewfuller.com.au uh, also mylearningstrengths.com and also on Facebook so Andrew Fuller Psychologist if they would like to link with me that way Fantastic, alright well again thank you so much for your time and your insights today Andrew it's been a, a real pleasure talking to you Thank you so much Tim, it's been a delight for me too Good chat there Tim I, um, I actually listened to that a few times as we were editing it up and I found it actually really useful as a, a father myself with um, two primary age kids at home who are you know they, they are worried about the bushfires uh, even though we live relatively far away and in an urban area but it is interesting to see um, you know how it can impact and of course as, as you said very early on in, in the, the chat there they're talking about this stuff you know in the playgrounds they're talking about it and, and and once you throw in the mix of you know coronavirus or terrorism events i mean it's a really interesting um challenge i'd imagine for schools and, and school leadership in order to well how do, how do we best support our kids and community in there so i thought that was really useful some of the things that andrew had to say yeah that's right dan i think a lot of teachers in particular uh, are feeling a little bit uncertain about how to raise these issues with kids um knowing that exactly as you say there's a lot of kids even those who appear to be reasonably untouched like your own kids who you know don't exactly know how to manage this they don't exactly know how to process it and by being able to bring it up as andrew suggests and then to do something really practical and worthwhile so that the kids can start to take some ownership over those feelings then those anxieties naturally drop away and as he said you know they start to heal themselves in a way it was a really great opportunity to talk to someone who's a real expert and uh we might look in a future episode, you've just raised the idea of coronavirus there as well, which is very present for us at the moment. And, you know, a lot of kids are seeing people walking around the streets wearing face masks and being confused and being made to feel uncomfortable about that. And I, I certainly know at a lot of schools in Sydney, uh, for example, that there are kids who aren't back at school because they had holidayed in China mm. uh, and are currently in some sort of quarantine. And that's very confusing for their classmates. So we might look at getting another psychologist on to talk about uh, the concept of bio-anxiety and, and how kids are dealing with that. Yeah, good. Excellent. All right. Well, if you um, found that chat with Andrew um, useful, then there's a fair chance that someone in your network will. So please share it as far and as wide as you can. Don't forget to like the podcast and comment on the podcast as that really helps other people find um, our stuff when they're just browsing through what's popular. And of course, please make sure you subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss any 
brilliant episodes just like the one today. And, of course, if you have any questions or comments that you'd like us to have or questions you'd like us to answer in upcoming Q&A episodes or perhaps suggestions for guests that we might get onto the podcast or perhaps you yourself would like to be a guest on the podcast, then head over to habitsofleadership.com and click on the podcast page there. But until next time, thank you very much, Tim. Thank you, Dan. And take care and take it easy. 